0: Again, so as we continue with the reading and now the preaching of God's word, John's gospel, the ninth chapter, John 9 and verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory to God. I'm sorry, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner, I not Or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Thus far the word of God, let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we magnify your name, that you are a God who is near at hand. You are a God who has spoken. You have spoken in your Son, and the living word, we rejoice, O oh God, that your word has been preserved even unto this day. We thank you, Lord, that we dwell in a place and time when we can gather freely and openly to worship you. Lord, as we take up now the preaching of the word according to your appointment, that we ask that you would bless both the speaking, the preaching of it, and our hearing of it, Lord, and that you would, by your spirit, work within us, that the word would have its demonstration of power within our being. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the first interrogation of the man born blind who Jesus had healed, as you will recall, on the Sabbath. Uh, we saw how the Pharisees were divided over the character of Jesus. Uh, one group said that he could not be, be, uh, be from God because he had healed on the Sabbath. And the other group reasoned that the man who was a sinner could not heal the blind. These Pharisees then asked the healed man what his position was on Jesus, and he announced he's a prophet. It seemed clear to him, simple enough. But that's not what they wanted to hear. The Pharisees then sought to discredit the man's testimony by seeking to prove that, in fact, he was not born blind. Verse 18 makes that clear. After examining his parents, the Pharisees hit another roadblock. They didn't hear from them what they had hoped to, and in their desperate attempt to escape the box that they had built for themselves in that moment, but above all, they wanted to discredit Jesus. The religious authorities returned then to pressing the man whose eyes Jesus had opened, that he will agree with them that Jesus is a sinner. In a court of law, there's a common rule that lawyers are not allowed to testify. They're to ask the questions and let the witnesses answer. That's what witnesses are called upon to do. Well, the lawyers that day are testifying in this case that they are seeking to try. They they testify uh, that the, the man... Uh, was not indeed blind. They also testify that they believed Jesus was a sinner. They wanted the man who had been born blind to join them in their blindness, their spiritual blindness, and to condemn Jesus. Instead, the man's spiritual eyesight was better than those lawyers, the Pharisees. He reasoned, he began to reason from the facts And he gains understanding. We've seen this in this whole dialogue, this back and forth in the chapter 9, where his understanding of who Jesus is, based on what has happened, is they go back and forth in the debate that he gains an understanding about Jesus. And then he seeks to persuade the Pharisees that Jesus was indeed a man come from God. This morning we're going to use three main headings as we look at this passage of Scripture. We look at the second interrogation of the spiritually blind. By the spiritually blind, the growing sight of the seeing man. It's a play on words, spiritual sight. The one who now sees physically. And finally, we will look at that unjust condemnation. So we begin with the second interrogation by the spiritually blind. Isn't that ironic? Remember, this is one of the themes of John's Gospel, the ironies. These men... Uh, Men have have their sight, have had their sight. They're questioning the man who has been blind, who now sees, and they're demonstrating their spiritual blindness, and it becomes very clear that he has spiritual sight. Verse 24, uh, we notice that, uh, by the way that John puts this, that the Pharisees had pulled away or dismissed the formerly blind man. Notice he says, so they again called the man, who is blind? So the, some of this debate that's been going on in the previous verses—they were conferring amongst themselves. They may have turned off into a huddle or stepped away from him. But now they—they they call him back. They—they they, in that time when they were conferring amongst themselves, they've decided something, and you see that as they go on to tell him, "We know this man is a sinner." Remember, formerly they were divided. And now they come back united. In that time when they were apart, they have settled this matter at least to some degree. Because that's one thing they have in common amongst all of them. They hate Jesus. They want Jesus condemned. They're determined to put him to death. We've already seen that as we have moved through the Gospel of John. And so whatever they thought about him, they come back. They're united on that one matter. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, that was their biased position, even in light of this man who appears before them, whose eyes have been opened by Jesus. uh, All the testimony is clear. The parents have testified. The man's testified. There would have been witnesses present who would have known the man and known him through life. Any of them could have spoken up. Uh, We don't know that they did. Perhaps there were murmurings in the crowd. But these men are already biased. Their mind was already made up. They're against him. They've already sent delegations to arrest Jesus so that they could... Put him to death. There have been those occasions where they took up stones to stone him. And because it was not his hour, as John puts it, he disappeared. He slipped away from them. And so they call him back again. Thus, I've spoken of the second interrogation. They've called him the back, summoned him back before them. And notice what they do there in verse 24. Once he's been summoned back, they said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. Give God the glory does not mean that suddenly they're ready to praise God for what's happened. Um, that their eyes were suddenly open. Would, would that it was so. But what they're saying to him is they're putting him under an oath, as it were. It's as though they were saying, we adjure you. Uh, we demand of you tell the truth. Well, what's the truth they want him to testify to? That indeed they, he would agree with them. Now, you remember back in Joshua chapter 7, there's the account of Achan. Um, God has blessed the armies of Israel. The walls of Jericho have fallen down. God had commanded they were to take no plunder for Jericho. And yet Achan took some silver and some gold and and a fine garment, and he's hid it under his tent. And so then they go out to battle against Ai, and unlike Jericho, they flee before the armies of Ai. And Joshua being a wise and godly man after the order of Moses, Uh, seeks God and God says there's sin in the camp and so uh, through some matter of lots or whatever the the lot falls to the tribe of Judah it falls to a particular family and then it it falls to Achan so Achan stands there before Joshua and what does Joshua say to him he says give glory to God Uh, it, it was a Hebrew form of putting a man under oath to tell the truth And to tell the truth is to give glory to God even when we've done what's wrong. Children, you've probably had those occasions where something's going on or your parents have discovered something and they don't know what happened. They weren't there. They didn't see it. But they said, I need you to tell me the truth. That's the sense of it. But in that case, they don't know what's happened. And I hope that your parents aren't biased. We would not expect them to be. But in this case, these superiors are very biased. They've already made up their mind, and they're demanding in the stressing of an oath that he agree with them that this man, what a way to refer to Jesus, that this man is a sinner. And so they make the demand of the man that he might agree with them. The Pharisees want... The man to admit something as truth, which is not, as they might say in a court of law, in evidence. There's nothing to support the claims that they are making. And why is it that they are so upset with Jesus? Well, he, notice how I put this, children, he broke their rules concerning the Sabbath. Jesus did not violate the law of God, he did not break God's law. Jesus never broke one of God's laws throughout his entire living. All his 33 years on earth, Jesus kept every single one of God's laws. And children, that's why Jesus can be our Savior, because he's righteous and pure and holy. He kept the law of God when we cannot. Well, when they, want, they make this demand that he agree that he is a sinner, we need to remember something about the Pharisees. For them, when they look at humanity... There are many who are sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and yet they would say, we're not sinners. Is that not remarkable? These religious leaders are so full of themselves and arrogant in their self-righteous attitude that they would not see themselves as sinners because they kept all their many rules and laws that were made up by men, and the people did not. So the people were sinners, and the Pharisees saw themselves as not being sinners. And yet God says, we're all sinners. We're all unrighteous. There's no one righteous. No, not one. But these men did not believe that. They put themselves as were in the seat of Moses to determine who was at fault, who was a sinner, and who was not. And, of course, they saw themselves as not being sinners. Because Jesus had broken one of their rules, perhaps several of their rules about the Sabbath, they deemed him to be a sinner. Well, the lawyers, all lawyers, like to do cross-examination, don't they? The man, you know, he's pressed this way. And look how he responds. They're so certain. We know that this man is a sinner. But what does he say? Verse 25, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. He's recognizing he doesn't have enough information. He's not rather, even when ready, even when they put him under oath, as it were, to testify to something he does not know. And what's remarkable is, his parents were afraid of these men that they might put them out of the synagogue, and so they only went so far in their testimony. But this man says, I'm not willing to testify what you want me to do because I don't know. I'm not going to say something under oath that I am not certain of. But what does he do? say? He does testify to the one thing that keeps coming up through this whole account. One thing I know, that though I was blind, Now I see. And there is the fact that is right there that is so needlesome to the Pharisees. This man was blind, and Jesus has certainly opened his eyes. This Jesus, who they would condemn as a sinner, has done something remarkable, something noteworthy, something supernatural. And it will be on this issue that the testimony goes forward. So what they do is they move then to cross-examine the man. They, they think he's hiding something. Children, if you've ever uh, watched a, a, a program with your parents where there's a trial underway, um, there, there's a man or woman who's trying to prosecute someone as being guilty, and still they'll ask questions of a witness. And then the defense of that individual, he gets to ask questions, she gets to ask questions as well. And oftentimes they're asking the same questions over and over again in different ways, trying to trip the person up that if they're lying that at some point they'll say it differently and the truth will come out or something that they've said will found to be in fault or perhaps that the witness is just discredited as not being trustworthy. And so that's what these Pharisees do. They they want to revisit things that they've already heard. They'll ask, they're asking for the same data. <clears throat> There's quite a contrast then between the man whom Jesus has healed in the Pharisees. They are certain of their ability to make up things that are not in evidence. What have they made up, children? That Jesus is a sinner. That's not in evidence, but they're certain of that. The man standing before these ruthless men, he's much more careful. He says, I don't know about that, and he refused to testify to it. But he, as we just heard from verse twenty-five, he is very quickly, quick to testify to one truth. Once I was blind, now I see. This man is courageous. Uh, he doesn't give in to their pressures. The man's witness is bold because his faith is growing throughout this exchange. Remember when Jesus meets with a Syrophoenician woman, and he wants she wants him to deliver her daughter, and she comes with faith, a little faith, but Jesus presses her out of tenderness and goodness to her so that as he challenges her, her faith grows in that time of opposition. And that's true for us, that we grow through trials. We grow when we struggle. We learn to look to the Lord. And as we look through chapter 9, you see the man who has been healed, his faith is growing. His confidence is strengthened. I'm sure that some of you parents of these children can think of occasions where you've been through hardships and difficulties. And as you looked at the promises of God and you relied upon them, that your faith grew. And you can look back 5, 10, 15 years and say, you know, my, my faith is not what it once was. And how is that so? You look at hardships, difficulties, suffering, losses, and you have found, as David said, that you've tasted of the Lord. And you've seen that he's good. God is true to his word. And even in this very compressed time of opposition, this man's faith is growing through the opposition. Well, the Pharisees, children, we could say they're bullies. These Pharisees are bullies. But what's remarkable, this man who once was blind, he won't be bullied. He is steadfast. Indeed, my brothers and sisters, we know how Jesus wants us to live and he enables us by his spirit to live in the way that he's commanded us to live and since we were redeemed by Christ we too can testify with conviction and many of us will say well I was a more bold witness when I first was converted and now we might look back and say I may not have been a very good witness may not have had all my facts straight Um, but I was certainly zealous Would that we now more mature in the Lord with greater knowledge would recover that zealousness zeal with knowledge to the glory of God. But cannot we not say using the language of this man that we look back when the Lord converted us and we say, I once was blind, but now I see. I know that. And that is a witness and a testimony that you can bear to others. I once was away in the world. I was a mess. My life was a mess. I thought everything wrong and my life was confusion. That's what I once was. But Jesus has come and now I am saved. I know I'm heaven bound. I have a new heart. I belong to a new family. I have a new destination. I know that because of what Jesus has done. We can bear that witness to others. Well, the healed man has been polite. But as the Pharisees ask the same question over and over again, it becomes clear to him that, it becomes clear to us that he's not unwise and he's not unequipped to engage with them. You know, one of the mistakes we make, we see somebody with uh, some limitation or a, a handicap or a disability, and uh, wrongly we will assume that somehow everything doesn't work so well upstairs. Now, that may be true, some people do have mental difficulties, but we tend to do that in a condescending manner to people who, um, in some manner, are weak. We just assume they're also weak of mind. Well, this man is not weak of mind. He has a brain that works very well, and he engages with them. Look at Verse 26. Now, they said to him again, What did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? This has already been answered. In a court, you know, the other side might, you know, uh, I object. It's asked and answered. Some you recognize that language in courtroom scenes. Well, it has, but they're seeking, and the, the guy who's asking the question say, Well, you know, I have a point. Bear with me. And often they don't have a point. But anyway, he picks up on it. He answers them, I told you already. And look what he says, and you did not listen. That's not to say you didn't hear, but you didn't listen. You didn't want to accept it. You don't want to receive it. And then, with a witticism, he says, do you also want to become his disciples? This is quite remarkable, the way that he engages with them. They're trying to trip him up and catch him in something. But he says, why do you want to know? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you desire to become disciples? His disciples also. Now, these Pharisees are crafty lawyers, but they've just been outwitted and they're not happy about it. You see it in their response. Uh, You see what nature of men they are, really, when they, verse 28, they reviled him. Children, that means that they answered meanly and cruelly. I don't imagine your parents have ever said to you when you're arguing back and forth, you know, you reviled your sister or your brother. But trust me, you probably have. That's just not a word that often gets used in our home. It's when you answer uh, with with meanness in your voice and you often start calling names and so forth. They reviled him. And notice something else they're certain of, which probably the evidence is there. You are his disciple. But we are Moses' disciples, and that is not necessarily a matter of fact, is it? Indeed, Jesus said, if you were Moses' disciples, you would receive me. I think we've already encountered that in John's Gospel. If indeed they were Moses' disciples, they would accept him because Moses wrote of him, Moses prophesied that God would raise up from their midst a prophet, indeed the great prophet. Remember back in the first chapter when these same Pharisees uh, sent a delegation to John the Baptist and they said, who are you? And one of the things he said was, I am not the prophet, I'm not him because the people had an expectation uh, at that time that he was about to come. And so these men claim to be disciples of Moses, but in fact, they are not. What's really truth about them is manifest in this reviling. They, they're angry men, and their mouths evidence what's within their hearts. And what's in their hearts? They are arrogant, proud, self-righteous men. Their confidence is in themselves. Their confidence is in their ability to keep their own sets of rules. And in that, we would say they're legalists. But the reality is their hearts are festering cesspools. Children, of cesspool is where the stuff goes when you flush the toilet in the house. They are cesspools. That's what's in their hearts. And they are blind to this, and therefore they don't even see their need for Jesus. They don't need see that they need a Savior, that somebody needs to rescue them and deliver them from themselves. The blindness of sin has caused these keepers of the law, as they would see it, to miss the point of the law. What is the point of the law? When we hear the Ten Commandments, we feel that blow fall on our hearts and we say, I need someone to rescue me. The law causes us to see our need for Jesus. These men, they're so confident they keep the law in their blindness, they don't see their need for any help. Someone has pointed out to me, I think early on when I came in to minister here in southern Rhode Island that that's pretty much what you find amongst the people around us. They don't really have any needs. You might go to the inner city and people have needs that it's mindful they're mindful of. But many of the Rhode Islanders here in the South County area, they have physical means, they have their health, they've got their house, they're, they're fine. They don't see themselves as having any need. That would be the nature of these men. And what they really need to hear is the law. That's really our way to engage with our neighbors. They need to hear the law of God. Are you a liar? God says liars go to hell. Have you stolen? Those who steal go to hell. That we would bring the law by God's blessing, by his spirit to bear upon their hearts that they would see their need for a savior. Well, this that is the problem in these Pharisees was the work of Satan. It's what he did in the garden. And I'm so thankful that we were in Genesis. Many of you were there with us a couple years ago. There in the garden, you remember, and I think most of you will be mindful of this, God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed. Is that not right? In the Garden of Eden, nothing was me- missing. All that they needed was in the, uh, around them in abundance. There was nothing lacking. And in doing this, God demonstrated his greatness, his kindness, his goodness, and his love, his ability to care for his creatures as their creator. But Satan came and he said, but there's that one tree over there that God said, know about. You can't have that. Satan, in effect, we could say he took that tree and held it up before their eyes so they couldn't see everything else. Children, do you know that you could take a small ball, and if you hold that small ball right up before one of your eyes, all you see is that ball. And yet the ball is small relative to everything that's out there around you, but with one little item, you can blind yourself from the realities that are out there. And thus somebody once said, They couldn't see the forest because of the tree. You stand behind one tree close enough and you can't see the grandeur of the forest. And that's what Satan did. He took that one tree that God says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And all of this was a demonstration of God's goodness. He had every right to make that commandment. But Satan said, God's keeping something from you. And then he attacked God's character in that, that God was uh, mean-spirited to Adam and Eve because he held up that one tree, as it were, before their eye, and they could no longer see all of the abundance. That's what these Pharisees are doing. They've taken the law and misappropriated it, and with the law, and this is what legalism does, it blinded them from seeing the goodness and the majesty and the glory of God who is displayed in his holy righteous law. And they missed God as he reveals himself in his good law. These Pharisees were in that trap. They could no longer see the lawgiver. And so what do they, they talk about Moses. Did Moses write with his finger on the stone and give the Ten Commandments? No. God was the lawgiver. You see that? The Pharisees, they don't even see God as the giver of the law. They see Moses, and thus they claim to be disciples of Moses. And that wasn't even true. But let us remember that God, like his law, is holy, holy. Just and good, as we heard from Romans seven twelve, again, a few years ago. God gave the law to his people after the Exodus. Let's remember that. We, we do this as we go through the law. Periodically, we'll take up the preface from Revelation, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, where he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then you might say, therefore, God then goes and gives them the law. When does he give them the law? After they've been brought out of bondage, after the exodus. So God didn't give them the law and say, hey, if you want me to be your God, if you want me to deliver you, you need to keep this law. He says, no, I have delivered you. God rescued them. It was a gracious act of God. God has saved them, we could say, by grace. And now he says, as my people, this is how you live in my family. God never gave the law to man, that by keeping it, he could be saved. And that's what the Pharisees are seeking to do. They think that by keeping the law, God will accept them. So what did they do, though? You've heard me talk about it. They took and made up their own set of rules, as though that was the law of God, those rules that they could keep, and they're very impressed with themselves, and they taught the people so that the people would be impressed with them as well. And yet, they walk in darkness. So much so that Jesus addressing them, he says, you're whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Well, they claim to be Moses' disciples, but they're not. If they were, they would accept the God of Moses. They would look to the God of Moses, and they'd be looking for the one who was promised that would come. They're so sure that they're reading Moses rightly. They're sure that they're reading Jesus rightly, and thus they condemn him as a sinner. And they say, as for this fellow, this is a scornful statement, as for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. But that's a lie. Turn back a couple pages to chapter 7 and verse 27. However, this is the Pharisees, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So they're very certain. And there's other times they say, well, we, we know his mother and his brothers. We know he's the son of uh, Joseph. Uh, he's from Nazareth. They, they know these things, but now they claim they don't know these things. They suddenly are arguing from a different position. But isn't what they say really true? What did Jesus tell them? He says, I've come from the Father. Father sent me this is what is recorded in John three sixteen for God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten son, and that 's the testimony of Jesus because that 's the truth that he bears now certainly it was through the, the virgin birth He was born of Mary, born of the Holy Spirit, and these things were also foretold we 've been in our law or in our homilies through Isaiah uh, you know, some time ago we were in chapter seven where God said that the promised one will be born of a virgin. And then in chapter 9, it's very clear that with the announcement that he's the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that he is somebody divine, that he's God come in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. These men are to be scholars. They, they claim to be scholars, that they know all these things, and they stake their reputation on it, and yet they don't know. They refuse to accept the truth about Jesus that indeed he has come from heaven because then they would have to listen to him. And they would have to repent of their many sins. They would have to cast down their idols and their structures of power and privilege in the midst of the people. But see, this is what John's driving at. We who are hearing these things, who would read these things, what is it that John wants us to know? We we keep referring to this from John 20, 31. He wrote these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that so believing we would have life in His name. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that came through Moses and the prophets. Jesus is the one that Moses said would come. Had the Pharisees studied the scriptures and understood, they would have seen this. But indeed, apart from the Spirit working in us, we're spiritually blind. And we cannot know these things. That's true for us as well, children. In order for you to comprehend these things, you need God's Spirit to open your eyes. That's a prayer. Lord, let me see Jesus. I want to see him as you present him. May God be merciful to us that we should not remain in blindness and fail to see Jesus. Well, secondly, we see the growing sight of the seeing man. This man was physically blind, the Lord has opened his eyes miraculously. But he also, as his passage progresses, as I've said, he's growing in his understanding. His heart has been transformed by the Spirit. And he's growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. Even as he makes his defense before the Pharisees. They're making an argument. He listens to the argument. He makes his own. And you see that his understanding grows. They're wanting to say, well, he healed on the Sabbath. He can't be sent from God. But indeed... He reasons he could not have been, he could not have healed him, opened his eyes, if he were not sent from God. He did not grasp at this point everything he needed to know. Next week we'll be looking at the last exchange between the man and Jesus. And he will understand more. But is that not our own testimony that as we walk with the Lord we grow in our understanding that we know more now than we did at the first more time we spend in the scriptures, more time reading. And that should be our desire. It should be our delight that we want to be in the word and know more about Jesus. Remember this. At this point, this man has not seen Jesus. He's been with him. He's been before him. Jesus took clay and packed it on his eyes and sent him off. But he's yet to see Jesus. As he comes back from the pool, Siloam, with his eyes open, Jesus is not there. All through this chapter thus far, Jesus has not been present other than right at the very beginning when he healed the man. But indeed, it's not necessary that he see Jesus with his physical eyes. Remember what Jesus told Thomas after the resurrection? Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Later on, they're telling Thomas about it. He said, well, I won't see. I won't believe until I see him and place my hand, uh, my finger in the holes, his hand or my hand in the side where he's been pierced. And then another occasion, Thomas is present. Jesus appears, and Thomas knows that he's—I mean, Jesus knows that Thomas has said these things. He said, "Thomas, come, place your fingers in my wounds." And he falls on his face. He says, "My Lord and my God." And Jesus says to him, "Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe." My friends, have you seen Christ with the eye of faith? Do you have salvation in Christ? Every one of us could say, I have never seen Jesus with my eyes. We've never seen him. But with the eye of faith as the Spirit has worked in us, we have seen Jesus and his glory and his majesty. We've beheld him as the Spirit has given us understanding and we believe. We have faith in this one whom God so sent into the world to save sinners. And so this man presses on with what I would call a holy boldness. He has an uncommon gift what is the uncommon gift that this man has he has common sense you see that in his reasoning it's remarkable that he believes he believes because jesus hasn't only opened his physical eyes jesus has given him spiritual eyes by the holy spirit and the man finds it most remarkable that the pharisees are so gripped with unbelief as he engages with them He says, why is this, why, Uh, when they say, we don't know where he's from, verse 20, 30. Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now remember, as we begin this whole thing, those who encountered the man who is now seen, they took him to the Pharisees. They were looking for uh, wisdom, for for counsel, some instruction concerning this mighty miracle that has been done. They've come to these men, and they have nothing to do. To offer them. And this man states it very directly. A remarkable miracle has been done. And he says, This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. These are the, the, the students of the scriptures. They would have had vast passages memorized. The passages about the Messiah, they would have known. And they should have understood that this is the Messiah, Isaiah 61. He opens the eyes of the blind, He sets the captives free. These are the things that were prophesied concerning Him. Children, I want you to think with me about this again. I don't want you to miss something that this healed man could see. I want you to see it. God doesn't listen to sinners, God doesn't do what sinners want want him to do but God listened to Jesus when Jesus spoke and the man was healed God listened to Jesus and the spirit worked in this man and opened his eyes his eyes were immediately open children do you know anyone that can do that children have you ever heard of someone who can open the eyes of the blind Have you ever encountered someone that can open or loose the tongue of the dumb or open the ears of the deaf? Have you ever encountered someone who can take a paralyzed, crippled man and with the word raise him up to wholeness? Well, Jesus is that one. Jesus did that again and again when he was here on the earth. Jesus is not just any mere man, is he? No mere man. Someone who's just a man can do those things, children. But Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he goes forth doing what his father would have him to do. That's what he constantly testified. Jesus is unlike any other. And children, if you would have someone to rescue you from your sin, Jesus is the one. If he can open eyes, he can also change sinners' hearts. And that's who we should run to is to the Lord Jesus Christ. This man marveled that these men could not see it. This man did not have a lofty theological education like them, like the Pharisees, and yet, common sense. I was mine, and Jesus opened my eyes. He must be sent from God. Common sense. Look again at verse uh, 33 or well back to 31 First, now we know that God does not hear sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God he do, and does his will he hears him there's his reasoning his common sense and then he, he speaks of something since the world began it has been unheard of that anyone open the eyes of one who was born blind there's no account if there had been such a count, it would have been something to have been told and retold and passed on again and again. There was this man back in history that he opened the eyes of someone born blind. But there was no such stories because it had never happened. And this man knows that. Since the beginning of the world, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And there's his conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That is, in a sense, no good thing. He couldn't have done these things if he was not sent from God. And that's but what Jesus' testimony has been to these same Pharisees. They wanted to find fault with him. And when he was engaged with them in the previous chapter, he says, I only do what my Father does. I only say what I hear my Father saying. And it was for this reason that Jesus came into the world. To change hearts. To take out stony hearts and to give a heart of flesh. Indeed. God so loved the world. That is to say he loved sinners in the world. That he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And remember, God sent him into the world while we were yet sinners. And he died. He who was just died for the ungodly. And he who was without sin became sin as the sacrifice so that he could give us new hearts, that he could deliver us from sin and that he could wipe away our record of guilt in the presence of a holy God. He stands before God on our behalf. There is no other like him and it was for this reason that God sent him into the world. Well, what's the response? Verse 34. They've heard his testimony. They've heard his reasoning. It's very logical. It's airtight reasoning. But they bristle up in with the same attitude we've seen. They said, you were completely born in sins. Well, that's true. Isn't it? He was. But so were they. Every one of them in that group of Pharisees was also completely born in sins. Because there's no one righteous. No, not even one. And they're ready to incriminate him because of their false standards, and you see their arrogance, you hear it. You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? Pride has been pricked. There's no doubt that to some degree their consciences have been poked, but not to the effect that they would repent and turn to the Lord. Instead, what's their response? John records it, and they cast him out. Look back at verse 18. I made a reference to this earlier. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. That's where they started from. But they've heard the testimony. The evidence is before them. What are they to do now? What do they do? They attack the man. They refuse to give God the glory for the great thing that he's done. And at that moment, Jesus is not there, so they cannot strike him. We know they want to. That has been demonstrated before already, and we will see it yet again. And so what do they do? They insult the man who believed. People of God, those of you who have faith in Christ, expect that from the world. Expect that the world will assault you and attack you, belittle you, mock you, persecute you, yes, even put you unto death because you follow Christ. Do not be surprised when that's the case. So the scripture teaches us will happen. So what did they do? The only thing they had the power to do, they threw him out. They threw him out of their presence at that time. In solid Bibles callers believe that they also put him out of the synagogue. Um, they would not have had the power to put him out of Israel because this was a synagogue matter. That would have had to come before the Sanhedrin. But as the elders in the local synagogue, they put him out. That was the very thing his parents were afraid would happen. So my friends, do not be despi- surprised when the world despises us. They hated Jesus and they will hate you if you call upon his name. So to conclude, what can we learn from this? If Jesus has saved us, he's purchased us with his blood. We belong to him. We've been bought with a precious price, the blood of the son of the living God. And so boldly profess Jesus before men. That's what he calls us to do. He says, go and make disciples and teach them whatsoever things I have commanded you. Be disciple makers. Many of you parents, that's what you're doing in your home. But indeed, there's others that you can draw alongside of and begin to teach them the things of the scriptures. Make disciples. God works through the word by his spirit to bring others to Christ. And in the course of it, you will find sinners that insult you. You have it happen in the workplace. There will be those who would persecute you. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. What was Peter and John's response when they had healed the lame man and they testified before these same men in a larger body, probably the whole Sanhedrin, and they beat them? And what did they do? They went away rejoicing. Not because they were beaten. They went away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, for his sake as we identify as Christians in this world that has fallen and under the curse for sin, we can expect this to happen. So let us go and live for God's glory, knowing that he will sustain us in such times. Look at how this man in such opposition has stood before these Pharisees. and By the grace of God, he's been able to give a good testimony. And even in the course of it, his faith has grown. Our God has not changed, and he will do that for us even in our day. Perhaps you're still a sinner needing a savior and you've seen that Jesus is unlike any other. He's able to save sinners. He can open eyes and he can change hearts. Call on his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what the word teaches. Believe on Jesus and have salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do marvel. The lessons that are in your word. We thank you for this event. Father, we give glory unto our God and his Christ and the Spirit who worked that day to heal that blind man, to give sight to one who had never seen, and furthermore, even of a greater value, to give him a new heart, to give him spiritual eyes to see Jesus, to have faith to look to him who had saved him. Father, what a tragedy it is when only eyes are open and hearts are unchanged. Father, we rejoice that You are able to do both, and it is your delight through your Son to save sinners. May it even be so in our day. Amongst our young little ones, Lord, call them to yourself, Lord, and give us all eyes to see Jesus and live for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing this time. uh, number.